Uh, Mark has prayed. We're going to continue making our way through Colossians chapter 3 as we are in our relationship focus here. As Paul is dealing with relationships right now, we're looking at the home. And I want to share with you today just an expression that, that we have come to use quite regularly in our American vernacular, and it goes something like this, drop it like a hot potato. We're all familiar with that, and the meaning is that, and we know that a hot potato is very hot to the touch, correct? Like it is so hot that people avoid handling them, and when and if they do handle them, they are looking to get rid of it as quickly as they can because it is too hot to the touch. In verse 20, Paul began addressing parenting by talking about the obligation of children to obey their parents in all things. Why? Because that is well-pleasing unto the Lord. But in verse 21, he made a hierarchical shift. There, he shifted from parents to fathers. Verse 21, fathers, it's very clear. Who he is addressing now, who he has in mind, the message now gets very targeted. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Now, why did Paul do that? Here's what we must establish today, and let me say, here's why we must establish it. We must establish this first critical point today because in too many Christian homes, this point has not been established. In too many Christian homes, this point is lacking. And I'm telling you, when this point is lacking, I can promise you parenting is absolutely going down the drain when we do not establish or we do not accept what Paul just did here in verse 21. Here is what is not established in too many Christian homes. Here is what has not been established over the years in too many Christian homes. You ready? Fathers are ultimately responsible for the training of children in the home. Fathers, not mothers, are ultimately responsible for the training of children in the home. That's a problem because too many fathers treat parenting or approach parenting like a hot potato. It is so hot that they have punted it to their wife. They have passed it on to Kid Town. They have passed it on to the teachers at school. They have passed it on to the, to the daycare center. It's too hot. So too many wives are bearing the burden of child training in the home. Brothers, we must always remember that our wives, they are our helpers. They're our helpers. So they help us manage all that God 
has given us to manage, which includes parenting. They are never to bear the burden of parenting or provision like we bear, brothers. Lori is to never feel what I feel when I look at my home, when I look at my children, and I look at what we need to survive. She helps me with all that, praise God, but she is never to feel like if I don't, we won't. Man, if, if I don't, boy, I tell you what, if, if, if I don't get these kids under control, it's going to be out of control, more than it already is. Over the years, I have witnessed wives in the home be absolutely worn down, worn out, overrun, discouraged, depressed because of the kids. This type of wife is often deeply concerned. She lays awake at night looking at the ceiling with tears running down her face. I mean, she is saying, I have no clue where these kids are going. And from what I can see, it, it does not look good. She's burdened. And her heart is sinking every day. This type of woman, and I've heard them, they actually call in to talk radio shows. Like, focus on the family when that was a big deal. And you know what they call in, what they call in about when it's talking about parenting? They call in saying, hey, how do I get my son to behave? How do I get my daughter to listen to me? How do I get them to stop throwing tantrums? These are women calling in. Please help me. <laughs> Brothers, hear me. Please hear me. The day that my wife has to go to another man to get help and direction for my children is the day that I walk into Sam Miles' office and I tender my resignation. I have no business doing what I'm doing when my wife has to go to another man for help and direction regarding the children who reside in my home under my authority. No, I have no right. I am disqualified. And the Bible makes that clear. David was a warrior king. The finest ever. In that category. But when it came to fatherhood, he took a hot potato approach. If I can humbly but honestly state, David was a terrible father. Terrible. His son Amnon raped his virgin daughter, Tamar. David completely missed, completely missed that Amnon had taken a lustful interest in Tamar. He missed that something was awry when Amnon requested to have Tamar make some cakes in his presence. His motives in that conversation were only dark, and face to face, David couldn't pick up on it. And after learning that Amnon had raped Tamar, and then hated her exceedingly after that, and then threw her out as if she was a cheap whore. Look at 2 Samuel 13, verse 21. 
But when David, when King David heard of all these things, he was very wroth. He should have been. He should have been. He was very wroth. Look at verse 22. And Absalom spake unto his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. David's daughter Tamar had to have been hurting beyond human belief. Can you imagine? Raped by her brother. Hated by him exceedingly afterwards and then thrown out like a piece of garbage. His son Amnon was unrepentant. And here is Absalom who is seething about this. Harboring vengeance in his heart. But would you notice verse 23 very carefully? And it came to pass after two full years. Two full years. That Absalom had sheep shears in Balhazer which is beside Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. David was very wroth, and he should have been. But the question is, what did he do? Nothing. Nothing. Two full years. All we're told is he was very wroth. Look at verse 38, 2 Samuel 13. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the soul of King David longed to go forth unto Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon, seeing he was dead. You know, it's very interesting when we find David back in chapter 11 and he's on the roof and he sees this beautiful woman bathing. He had no issue. He did not lack initiative in having her brought to him. So let me ask you, how hard would it have been then for him to go to Absalom? (laughs) If anybody knew how to get things done, it was King David of Israel. He had an obligation to deal with Absalom for murdering his son Amnon, yet three years had passed, and what had he done? Joab had to scheme to have Absalom brought back to Jerusalem. Would you look at 2 Samuel 14, 28? So Absalom dwelt Two full years in Jerusalem and saw not the king's face. 
Two full years had passed since David's daughter was raped. Absalom was in Geshur for three years, and two full years had passed since Absalom had returned to Jerusalem. So here's what we have. We have seven, at least seven years on the resume of David as a father where, listen, brothers, he failed miserably. Miserably. I have seen it. You say, well, yeah, David, I mean, man, he had a really big job. He was the king of Israel. Yeah, he did have a really big job, but I have seen it over the years. I have seen men who are dynamic in the boardroom. They're dynamic in the corporation. They can drive companies to great profit. And they can organize, and, 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 and they can do all of that, and, and they can manage Big groups of people, hundreds, thousands. Yet their wife is seeing a therapist weekly. And their kids are an absolute train wreck in life. So they can manage a company of 5,000, 20,000. They can lead a department of, of 500, 1,000, but they can't manage a home of five. Somehow, they detach themselves, divorce themselves from being responsible at home. But they feel great responsibility for the company. And when David did meet with Absalom, Absalom had to force that meeting. And in that meeting... David added to his resume of failure as a father. Look at 2 Samuel 14, 33. So Joab came to the king and told him, and when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And listen very carefully. This is very, very important. And the king kissed Absalom. That kiss represented complete forgiveness and reconciliation. What about Absalom's sin of murder? What about the field that Absalom had just burned that belonged to Joab, that belonged to Joab to force this meeting with David? What about that? That showed David that Absalom was not fully repentant. The fact that Absalom had just burned a field that belonged to David's commander to force that meeting should have told David, your heart is still not right yet. You're not repentant. So what did he do? He missed it. Absalom's actions following this meeting were proof positive that he was not repentant. Because immediately following this meeting, what did he do? He began orchestrating and organizing things for an all-out rebellion, a coup d'etat, against his father. And David missed it. 
Look at 2 Samuel 15, 7. And it came to pass after 40 years that Othlam said unto the king, I pray thee, let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed unto the Lord in Hebron. Uh, scholars have corrected the Bible in saying that we have an obvious clerical error here in 2 Samuel 15, 7, which is why modern Bibles will tell you that it was four years. What the Bible is telling us, however, was not that it had been 40 years since David met with Absalom, but 40 years since he had been anointed for Samuel 16. Here's where we're going, though. Until David was notified, he was in the dark that Absalom was orchestrating a rebellion right under his nose. He was standing by the gate. You know what? If I were the judge, let me tell you what I would do if I were in charge. Yeah, the king's too busy, but I'm not. This was happening right under his nose. And until he's notified, we're not given anything that says he knew. Brothers, that was inexcusable for any father, but especially the king of a great nation. How could he have not known this? This is huge. Sadly, some fathers are in complete oblivion regarding the state of their children. They're oblivious. They have no clue. They have no idea what's really going on in the lives of their children. They have no clue how they're walking, how they're living. They have no clue. There are some fathers who have teenage children living right under their roof. Listen very carefully. Listen who are fornicating actively. And they have no clue. They have no clue. <laughs> they, they have children who have social media accounts that, listen, uh, they're private. Okay, I get it. Uh, they can be private to anybody, but they're not going to be private to me. Uh, pardon me, and again, remember the agreement we made last week? I'm not targeting anybody, but I'm telling you, I know how this is all working. Okay? I'm a pastor. <laughs> you got some social media accounts that, for some teenage kids living in Christian homes, listen, are X-rated. There are some children living right now in Christian homes in this church. There are some children, listen, who are well on their way into addiction. Well on their way. And their fathers have no clue. There are some children right now who are buying the absolute filth and trash of this world about their gender. Their gender. Did I say like, like a New Yorker gender? Like it's gender, not gender, okay? Just so you know, in New York, if it ends in an R, you pronounce it with an A, and if it ends in an A, you pronounce it with an R, pizza. I know, right? It's crazy. We need a little levity, didn't we? I know, I can get pretty. Guys, this is, listen, 
You want to, this is heavy. <laughs> if there's one thing that I understand as a father is, I understand I'm responsible. <laughs> I get it. Or there are some fathers who are aware about these things. But here's the math they do. Oh, it's just a teenage phase. They'll, they'll get through it. Really? <laughs> really? You think that one day a kid who's been doing meth for years is just going to wake up one day and go, I'm done? You think a kid who has been viewing pornography every day of his life since he was 12 is going to wake up one day at 25 and go, okay, I'm good. I'm ready for a healthy, godly marriage now. I'm sorry to break it to you. That's, that's not how it works. In his old age, David's failure in fatherhood was summed up for us in 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared him chariots and horsemen, and 50 men to run before him. And his father had not displeased him at any time in saying, Why hast thou done so? And he also was a very goodly man, and his mother bare him after Absalom. David had already publicly proclaimed that Solomon would succeed him. But his fourth oldest child, or his fourth oldest son living, sorry, his fourth oldest son living at the time, Adonijah, said, I don't think so. I've got other plans. So like Absalom, Adonijah would try and lead his own rebellion. And David did what he always did as a father. Look at verse 6. And his father had not displeased him at any time in saying, Why hast thou done so? David did nothing. Here's Adam, I mean, you would think he would have learned after Absalom's rebellion. You think he would have learned? I mean, Adonijah was following the same playbook. Yet David did nothing. You say, well, yeah, he was old and getting ready to pass, but I guess I, I could consider that if the rest of his resume would disagree with that. But what he did here is reflective of what he always did as a father, which he did not deal with things. Please, fathers, I beg you to hear this. The option to do nothing as a father is never an option. The option to do nothing as a father is never an option. Never. The question that emerges, though, is you're looking at all this and you're saying, wait a minute, I mean, can you imagine how privileged of a life it should have been for David's children to be the son of the great King David, 
the great warrior of Israel, the sweet psalmist, the man after God's own heart. I mean, like, to be one of his children, you would think, what else could you want or need? Why wouldn't you just be okay with that? Here's how David's children did what they did. Fathers, I'm telling you, I'm going to give you something here that you lose here, you can mail it in. You can just tuck yourself in your bedroom, close the door, and watch TV until your children leave home if you miss what I'm about to give you right here. David's credibility had been shattered with his children. David's credibility had been shattered with his children. He lost all credibility with them. David's children were aware of his polygamous ways. They knew that their father was a womanizer. They knew it. They knew that he had committed adultery and had a man murdered to try and cover it up. You think David's children didn't know all that? <laughs> they knew that, wait a minute, I'm the raped our sister and you didn't do anything about it. Two years passed. And then Absalom was gone for three years, and you didn't do anything. And then he came back for two years, and you still didn't do anything. Hear this. When a father loses credibility with his children, listen very carefully, he loses his voice and their respect. That's why, brothers, you cannot lose that. You can't lose it. You cannot lose your credibility in your home. You can't lose it. Because when you do, listen, you are finished as a father. You're finished. When you lose credibility, when you don't have a voice and they don't respect you, listen, they will address you and they will speak to you with pure contempt. They won't even speak to you like a friend. They'll address you and speak to you like you're a dog. And they will do anything in front of you. I mean, they will disobey with boldness and cross all kinds of lines, including legal ones essentially daring you to do something. See, I don't, I don't respect you. <laughs> you have no voice. You have no presence with me. You know what? I'm going to think, say, and do whatever, and I dare you, I dare you to stop me. The responsibility of the father in child training is punctuated very clearly for us in Ephesians 6, verse 4. Here we go again. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, 
but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You know, whatever it's worth, my goal, one of my goals in every message is not to sweat. Am I really, am I working that hard? Am I working hard? I, I don't, I'm good, I have a napkin. I'm, I'm, I, just, I just want you to know, I, I don't want you to be like, oh, he looks gross. I'm sorry, but I, I guess maybe I am exerting more energy than I know, all right? It's the lights, yes. The lights add to it, right? I can't help it, I guess. Next week, we're going to wrap things up with a very clear look at encouragement. That's where we're going next week. But it was so critical, and it is so critical, that we just establish the responsibility of fathers today. Because I'm telling you, that is lacking. I know it. But as Paul did in Colossians 3, he addressed parents and then pivoted to fathers. And in addition to not provoking their children to wrath, fathers are to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Would you notice, brothers, let me tell you, I think one of the problems, one of the problems that I see with too many fathers is they're not biblical. They don't think biblically, they don't speak biblically, so they don't live biblically. Oftentimes, here's what we've done. We have allowed the world, brothers, to tell us that when it comes to nurturing children, that's a woman's responsibility. What does the Bible say? Who nurtures children? Fathers. Fathers, not mothers, are commanded to this word nurture, it means tutorage. That is education or training. By implication, Disciplinary correction. That's on us. This word nurture in Hebrews chapter 12 is translated four times as chastening or some variation of that word. Admonition, it means calling attention to. That is by implication, mild rebuke or warning. So, here we go, fathers. An essential role of the father is to listen establish a clear training and disciplinary process in the home because you are responsible for that, fathers. A father must establish a clear training and disciplinary process in the home. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that Timothy ought to know how to behave himself in the house of God. We understand that. Fathers, one of the things that you must teach is you must teach your children how to obey or how to behave themselves in your home and in the house of God. You teach that. You teach them how to behave themselves in your home and in this home. Fathers, you want to be, listen, you want to be and you must be crystal clear with your children regarding how you expect them to behave. Crystal clear. And as important, they must know that they are held accountable to those expectations. 
In other words, they never get to dismiss themselves or excuse themselves from what you have clearly communicated to him to them regarding how you expect them to behave. They never get to write that off without having to answer to it. It's called accountability. Lori was with our children in the early years during the day, and I requested and I received daily reports. Every single day, I wanted to know how they were behaving in my home. She never had to wonder if, if, if I was thinking about that, if I cared about it. No, 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 no. I wanted to know every day. And whenever, not occasionally, but whenever the expectations that I had clearly established and communicated, whenever those were not met, they always knew they had to meet with me one-on-one, face-to-face directly, and give an account for that. Your mother communicated to me that you behave this way in this situation. Is that true? Yes. What did I teach you? What did I tell you about what I expected of you in that situation? To obey. Did you do that? No. Did you choose to disobey? Yes. Okay. I need you to go to the room, the discipline room. We'll call it just the room. I got to teach you. Listen, I'm not wasting my time or trying to entertain you. I meant what I said. How my children behaved outside of my direct presence told me volumes about where they really were. I wanted reports from Kid Town, not just the good ones. But whenever my kids did not measure up or whenever they did not behave properly, I wanted to know that and not get defensive. What are you guys doing in kid town? You, if you, no, 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 no. You know what? I know my kids. Any report that I ever received about my kids that was constructive, I knew. Because <laughs> I know my children. <laughs> yeah. You know what? Thank you. That's exactly what we're working on at home as well. We were driving to church one Sunday, and I knew, because I would always check with my kids about whatever assignments they were given during the week from Kid Town, and, and we were driving, and I noticed it was very quiet in the back seat. And I kind of peeked in the mirror, and I saw one of my kids, and they were working on the assignment that they should have been working on all week. And they were scrambling to get it done. So I start probing. And so I finally, I said, so let me, let me make sure I got this right. Um, you were supposed to work on this all week, correct? Yes. Did you do that? No. Okay, so let me make sure I'm with you. So what you're doing right now is you're scrambling to get it done. And now you're going to walk into Kid Town and give the impression that you did what you were supposed to do all week, right? Is that, gets really quiet. And the tears, yes, okay. So guess what I did? I walked this child into Kid Town. 
I walked them into the room of their teacher, and we sat down, the three of us, and I said, they have something to confess to you. And with tears running down their face, they said, I didn't do my homework this week, and, and I was working on it on the way in to give you the impression that, okay, well, that's fine. It was the truth. You know what? That was, that was very hard for my child. It was embarrassing, but it was necessary. Why did I do that? <laughs> the last thing I wanted them to learn I did not want them to believe that it was okay for them to manipulate their Christian walk. I did not want them to learn how to become a really good hypocrite, where they learn, they master false impressions. Like, listen, I'm not really who you think I am, but I just want to at least give you that impression. No. That was a teaching moment, fathers. I was crystal clear regarding what I expected of them as it relates to my wife in terms of how they are to deal with her at all times. They did not, they will not, and they do not ever raise their voice at her. They do not talk back to her. They are never to be dishonorable to her. I do not allow that in my home. Period. I am aware of this dynamic that can exist between mothers and daughters in the teen years where Somehow, teenage girls believe that they are entitled and they have permission to be vicious and even hateful toward their mothers. Or teenage boys who despise their mothers and talk to her like she's pure dirt. No way. No way. The last time that that happened, the way that I just described it to you, the last time that happened in my home was when one of my children was six years old. And when the dust cleared on that situation, it was crystal clear. As long as you are in this house, you absolutely will never address my wife the way that you did. Are we clear? Ever. Uh, Proverbs 30, verse 11. There is a generation that curseth their father and doth not bless their mother. When it comes to mothers in the home, the only option for children should be to obey them, honor them, and bless them. That's it. No other option. <laughs> Listen, I get it. Your mother is not perfect, but that's your mother. I get it. And I taught them very clearly to do the opposite 
was to disobey, dishonor, and curse me. How you treat her is how you're treating me. A staple statement in Lori's speech during his time, when we were in those critical early years of training, she would always remind the kids, what did daddy say? What did daddy teach you about that? What did daddy say he expected of you to do in this situation? What was she doing? She was reminding them. She was holding them accountable to the training that we had agreed on regarding the children in our home. Fathers, I love you as my brothers in Christ. But I have to tell you, If your wife is discouraged, worn out regarding your children in your home, that is 100% on you, not her. 100%. My children, again, guys, this this is not to say that um, the way that Kenny did it is how everybody ought to do it. Listen, you are accountable. You take what you're being given and you work with that but I will tell you this from a very early stage in life my children were introduced to family meetings okay this is where we would sit down at the table all four of us and that's where I would communicate very clearly this is what I expect this is what I need from you one of those meetings I remember, we, we had a few of them. One of them was, Lori made a comment to me that she says, well, we're, she, we were scheduling when to go to the grocery store, and she goes, well, I, I prefer to go without the kids. And I said, well, why is that? She goes, it's just difficult. It's just hard to, you know, they're, I'm trying to shop, and they're running over here, and they're doing this and that, and it just becomes a whole thing. And I said, well, okay, you, you, please tell me these things. So guess what happened? We had a family meeting. Okay, you guys like, you like being able to go to the fridge and get a snack? Yeah. You, you guys like, uh, you, you like pizza night and all that, that, the frozen pizzas we get from Sam? You like all that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I do too. But listen, the report that I have received is that when mom takes you guys to the store, that's a very difficult experience for her for these reasons. Does that sound correct? Now the heads go down, yes. Okay, so I want to make sure we're all on the same page. When we go to the store, there are two things that we're going to do, and only two. Number one, the moment we walk into the store, we're going to say in our hearts to God, thank you. Thank you. Lord, thank you that you have provided for us so that we can come to the store and get what we need. Thank you, Lord. And then here's the second thing we're going to do. The second thing we're going to do is say, Mom, how can I help you? And we're going to do what Mom says. So here's what we're not going to do. We're not going to run around the store and have Mom have to chase you down and and get on to you. So I want to make sure we're all on the same page. If I get any other report than that, then we'll have another meeting with me, one that I'm not sure you're going to enjoy very much. Are we clear? Any, and I would always ask my kids, any questions? Is there, is there anything that I have communicated that you don't understand or 
you need clarification about, and Ken, he always, no. Bree, she's the inquisitive one. Uh, well, okay, so dad, let me ask. So like, if we're in the store, and like, if there's, some, if there's a snack that I want, is, is it okay for me to ask? That's fine, sure. But what I can't have you do, I can't have you run off and grab the bag of candy and bring it back to mom. I need you to stay with mom and help mom. Okay. Fathers, it might be time for you to carve out some quality time with your wife where you solidify your training and disciplinary process. That's what I did. And then from there, you call a family meeting to communicate that. And as important, when you put the final period on that meeting, it should be very clear to your children and to you what's expected. And that is not negotiable. Amen? Father, I want to thank you for your word. I know it never returns void. I do pray for my brothers who are fathers that God they would own, accept, and embrace the great responsibility that they've been given as fathers for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.